Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today we have a special guest, and we're going to be examining whether or not we can prove the existence of God. Yeah, we're lucky enough to be joined by Brandon Vaught of Claritas U, and he's going to share with us the single best argument for the proof of God's existence. Do not judge me because I believe in science. I believe. Do you believe? excited about today's episode, guys. Good to see y'all. Uh, Brandon uh, Vogt, wel- welcome to the show. Yeah, Brandon is calling in remotely. We're in the studio. Brandon is calling in from, from the Shire in further southern Florida. <laughs> so we're really lucky to have him. Uh, I've known Brandon for a long time. He really is one of the, you know, one of the best apologists, one of the best young apologists in the church. Um, to, to the way that he's able to take all of the I guess the, the classical arguments of, of philosophy, Catholic teaching, and present them in a really modern way. Yeah, he's really been a great asset to the church. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on, Brandon. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Love to be here. Thanks. Well, Brandon, I am so pumped. I've been I've been watching your your material from afar and admiring your ministry that God has entrusted to you. So, as we begin, first and foremost, we want to just say a big shout out to all of our patrons who have made this show possible. So, to those who financially contribute, we wouldn't be able to do it without you. If you're considering becoming a contributor to our show to ensure productions just like this and guests as amazing as Brandon come on the show, please consider becoming a patron today by going to patreon.com forward slash the Catholic talk show. There you'll see every way that you could support us. And we have some really cool gear and specialized content as well that we want to share with you. And please follow us on social media if that's your thing, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to find out other ways to listen in or view our contact content, be sure to go to catholictalkshow.com. There you'll see every single way that you could listen in or view. And if you are viewing on YouTube, take a little moment out, click the subscribe button, and then click that little bell so whatever we produce will populate in your feed. So one thing that I want to populate in my feed is a greater understanding for the proof of the existence of God. And I am thoroughly excited about this show. Yeah. So Brandon, that's one of the most common questions uh, that one of the most common requests that we've had for an episode of the Catholic talk show is talking about some of the proofs for God. Now I'm sure Brandon, you you can do multiple episodes and you have done voluminous works on, on the proof of God. But I think today, uh, as we were talking, you wanted to focus on one that I think you deem and you've said in the past that you think is the single best uh, philosophical and theological proof for God. So why don't you, uh, why don't you tell everyone what that is and, and let's start discussing that. Sure. Yeah. A few maybe preliminaries. So first of all, there are lots and lots of good reasons to believe in God. In fact, um, Dr. Peter Kraft has identified at least 20 arguments for the existence of God. If you Google existence uh, arguments for the existence of God, you'll find an article where he outlines uh, 20 of them. And then philosophers and theologians continue to add to that list. So there's a ton of arguments, proofs, reasons, however you want to describe them. Um, I, I tend to use the word reasons, good reasons to believe in God. Now, they vary in in terms of their complexity and effectiveness. You know, you, you could have a really airtight argument for God, but it's just so complex to roll out. It requires, you know, 50 pages of background and philosophical terms that it's just not deployable in a day-to-day conversation. And so for those reasons, I tend to favor the more simple, straightforward arguments for God, ones that are easy to share with friends or family. And when you reduce the 20 down to those maybe uh, conversational, some simple type arguments, the one that I think really stands out among all of them is one that's known as the Kalam argument for God. Now, this was popularized in the medieval period by Muslim theologians. It kind of faded out of popularity for several centuries, but then Um, especially over the last hundred years, it's been revived most prominently by the Protestant theologian and philosopher, William Lane Craig. He kind of has made it a a, a pretty popular, well-discussed argument for God. He's he's 
pretty much single-handedly responsible for the revival of its popularity. Um, but I, I love it because it's simple and easy to remember. So let me briefly run through the argument and then we can uh, maybe spend some time unpacking it. So the argument has three parts. The first premise says, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The second premise is that the universe began to exist. The universe began to exist. Now, the conclusion flows logically from those two premises. If everything that begins to exist has a cause and the universe began to exist, then it logically follows that the universe had a cause. From there, you can sort of reflect on what this cause must be like, and you can determine different characteristics and traits of this cause. For example, if the universe contains all of matter, space, time, and energy, then the cause of the universe must be beyond those things. It must be transcendent. It can't be one of the things within the universe. It must be beyond it. So it's transcendent. Um, it's immaterial because it gave rise to all matter. It's timeless or eternal because it gave rise to all time. Um, it must be infinitely complex and powerful if it gave rise to all of this complexity and, and design in the universe. So you begin to tease out the traits of this cause and you're left with something like a transcendent, all-powerful, timeless, immaterial, incredibly uh, uh, powerful cause of the universe. And then uh, you close the argument with the line that Thomas Aquinas liked to finish with, which is, this is what most people call God. So that's kind of the basic way the argument runs. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And the only thing that makes sense of, uh, of all of these characteristics and traits is that God is the cause of the universe. So again, we can definitely unpack it some more. But what I love about it is it's pithy, it's quick. Most people kind of can wrap their heads around it. And so it tends to be a pretty effective, uh, at least starting point for showing somebody or demonstrating that God exists. So what are some of the common, I would say, counter arguments of that, right? Because I think it's a very logical, straightforward uh, uh, proof, as it is in, in the classical sense, that these things are logically uh, coherent. What are some of the, I guess, contras to this, and how yeah. do you refute those? And, and also, what, one of the things I'm interested too, it probably dovetails into that very mm -hmm. well, is, is this an intellectual argument presented to somebody through an intellectual framework, if that makes sense? Hmm. Yeah, so let me answer the second question first. So it's definitely an intellectual abstract argument. You know, it doesn't convey the sort of warm, fuzzy, religious feelings that many people associate with God, you know, it doesn't depend on, you know, a profound religious experience. Um, so for some people, this might just not hit, you know, maybe they're not intellectually inclined, maybe it's too philosophically complex. So it might not land for some people. But I find for a lot of people, it's it's easy enough to follow and it's easy enough to understand the terms. And so it, it does have a lot of weight. Um, to answer your question, Ryan, there are typically three forms of objections to the Kalam argument. So Remember, premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. The conclusion follows naturally that the universe had a cause. Now, nobody doubts the conclusion because it just logically follows from the two premises. Sure. So if you accept those two premises, the conclusion said there's nothing you can uh, respond, uh, offer in response to it. So the, the objections, either people object to premise one, people object to premise two, or they might agree that the argument is valid that the universe had a cause, but they don't think that cause is God. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe let's, let's kick around maybe the first objection. Um, uh, it, let me just preface this by saying it used to be that most people would object to the second premise that the universe had a cause because the prevailing scientific view for the last several hundred years was that the universe existed eternally into the past that the universe was infinitely old. That was kind of the mainstream scientific view, but it's only within the last hundred years that that's been completely switched so that the mainstream view of cosmologists today is that the universe did have a definite beginning in the past about 14 billion years ago. So uh, it used to be that uh, most people objected to the second premise. That was the real problem. Today, a lot of people take issue with 
the first premise. Um, so anyway, I find it interesting that uh, atheists, especially atheist scientists, have kind of been on their heels a little bit when it comes to this argument. Uh, you know, they they first take issue with the second premise, but then they're now they're on the first premise, and they're they're kind of trying to find a way out. Uh, but the more you press the argument, the more I think it it becomes forceful. So. Let's just talk briefly about the first one. Everything begins to exist has a cause. This is a basic foundational principle of not only everyday life, you know, we don't experience things that come into existence without a cause. We don't see things just springing into being out of nothing for no reason at all. You know, we don't see lions and cars and buildings and people just popping into existence. It'd be utterly chaotic. We recognize that everything that comes into being has a cause or an explanation. Um, even the sciences depend on this. You know, think about how the sciences would fall apart if there just were no good causes or explanations to to explain different phenomena. You know, science, scientists are are uh, dependent on the question, why did this or that happen? And that's only an interesting uh, question if there does exist some cause or explanation as an answer. Yeah, if the universe, if just the universe has without, to be intelligible, like uh, Joseph Ratzinger yes. said, the argument from intelligence yes. or from being able to be recognized. Yes, that's right. Otherwise, all the sciences and all mathematics would just fall apart. Right. Our, our universe wouldn't be intelligibly investigatable. Mm. Um, so again, I think mo- few people deny this first premise. Most people agree that okay, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Um, so I find most people object to the second premise more than the first one. Hmm. You know, I there was a book uh, maybe about five, 10 years ago, Lawrence Krauss, right? He's one of those, uh, I don't know, he considered himself one of the four horsemen of atheism or whatever, one of the new atheists. And he had this book, um, Something Out of Nothing, I think it was called. Uh, where he's, A universe from nothing. Universe from nothing, was, yeah. yeah. And his premise was, well, yeah, the universe can create itself because there's quantum foam and quantum mechanics. Uh, so the universe has the ability to create itself. <clears throat> and the, the absurdity of that, and which to me was like, how is this lost on a scientist that quantum foam is in, in and of itself a material cause? It's a material thing. It's a, it's a wavelength, right? It is an existential reality. So how is that something from nothing? That's not ex nihilo, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Th- yeah. That's then. That's the yeah, kind of he, argument he raised, and I was like, "That makes no sense." Yeah, isn't the yeah? Krauss Krauss was widely panned by a lot of his fellow scientists, even atheistic scientists, for playing fast and loose with some of the terms, mainly the word "nothing," right. because by the word "nothing," he doesn't mean no thing, the, the non-existence of being. He meant like a fluctuating vacuum state, and that if you have a fluctuating vacuum state, from that a whole universe can arise, but it just begs the question. It kicks the question up a level and says, well, what caused the fluctuating vacuum state? Yeah, then Why did got, that come into being? Yeah, then he got almost into a contingency argument with himself, you know, which uh, the contingency argument is, would you say that Kalam is a modified version of like the cosmological contingency argument? Yeah, good question. So the the term cosmological argument includes a whole family of arguments that look to the universe for evidence for God. They, they see the universe's existence itself as a signpost to God. So there's lots of different versions of cosmological arguments. Thomas Aquinas had uh, a few of his own. The Kalam argument is, is one example, and the contingency argument is another. But there's an important distinction uh, between these two arguments. And actually, uh, I'm, I have a free video course going on right now through Claritas U where I walk through a handful of arguments for God. And we have a separate video on the Kalam argument from the contingency argument. And here's where they differ and why it's important. The contingency argument, I actually think is a even better argument than the Kalam argument, but it's harder to convey to people. The reason it's better is because the contingency argument doesn't depend on whether the universe began to exist. Right. And so it doesn't matter if the universe was eternally old, if it was 14 billion years old, if it was 6,000 years old, as some fundamentalist Protestants maintain. The contingency argument just says, if the universe is contingent, meaning it doesn't explain itself, it's not necessary, it exists uh, on the basis of other th- other things, other factors, it's, it's, its existence uh, can only be explained in light of other things. If the universe is contingent, then it demands an explanation. And that explanation 
can't itself ultimately be contingent. Otherwise, you need another explanation to explain that contingent reality. So you ultimately need some necessary, some necessarily existent thing to explain all the contingent things in the universe. And that's how you arrive at God. So there's a subtle difference between the contingency argument and Kalam argument. They're not the same. Um, I, I think the contingency argument is stronger, harder to convey. The Kalam argument has some maybe uh, weaknesses, but it's easier to convey. So there's a lot of tools in the arsenal of the Christian, depending on who you're talking with and which arguments you want to share. Brendan, I, I went to Abi Maria, studied philosophy, you know, got an undergrad in that, and then obviously went off to the seminary and, and studied theology. I, I say that because I'm no like intellectual giant. I don't have a PhD. I don't have my doctorate. Um, but I still remember having this incredible experience in class when we were going over the ancients and Aristotle started talking about like that, that prim, the prime mover, primum movens, and the first mover, unmover, the unmoved mover, and like that primal cause. And I remember like intellectually being like, wow, yeah, there's cause, there's movement, there's something that has been set into motion, there's order, there's integrity, there's this dynamic interdependency. And, you know, like philosophically, my brain was starting to mold and it, it was just such an encounter for me of God where I'm kind of more of like the heartfelt Italian romantic love God, Jesus, you know, dying on the cross for the salvation of our souls. Don't get like super, you know, yeah. Christological and everything. My grandma told me, so I just know it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, faith, I, I, I'm blessed because I always had that gift from God where I always, I did believe uh, but this, like when that happened for me personally, and I started to kind of touch on the philosophical chords of it, it was mind blowing to me. So with this system of a proof for God, how does that relate to like some of the ancients in Aristotle? Because it, I feel like they're kind of connected. Yeah, a lot of these proofs find their roots in the ancient Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, each of whom had uh, their own arguments for God. Those arguments were developed by Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas. There's a long tradition of, of smart thinkers from various religious backgrounds, from Christian to uh, Muslim to Jewish to pagan, thinking about the question of God. So what bothers me a lot of times is, you know, you'll talk to um, contemporary skeptical friends or family members and they're completely oblivious to the fact that really, really smart people have been thinking about these things for a long time. You know, I think the prevailing view of Christianity is just that, you know, it's a silly, dumb superstition. You have to check your mind at the door. Uh, but then you read, you know, writings of Augustine, Anselm Aquinas, you read Plato and Aristotle, you read John Henry Newman or Benedict XVI, and you realize these are some of the most high octane minds in the history of the Western world taking these arguments seriously and being persuaded by them. So we Christians have uh, intellectual ammo. Like we're not, we're not just fighting with water guns here. We have really, really strong, well-developed arguments for God. And we need to learn our tradition well and be able to share these arguments with others. Brandon, uh, just, I mean, I, I, I go to Colorado every summer and the, the fascination I have with the causation of those mountains and ridges and all these things. It's, it's a wondrous event for me every summer and it's endless. It seems endless. And, you know, as I was thinking about that, I was wondering how uh, through the process of this uh, conversation that somebody would have with this, with the understanding that, you know, a light bulb goes on and it's like, I can't find this initial cause what are some of the reactions that you see from people who you've talked to that have sort of come to understand, at least in a, a very simple sense, that there's this first mover, this prime mover? Yeah, my experience, having had hundreds of these types of conversations with atheists and skeptics and non-believers of every sort, it's very rare that you'll just roll out an argument and within one conversation, the light bulb will go off and they'll say, ah, there must be a first cause and that first cause must be God. Usually the way these conversations go is you'll discuss these arguments. You'll maybe reach an impasse where there's sort of an unanswered question or maybe something that either they can't get their mind around or you can't quite communicate clearly. But I found in many of those conversations, 
that initial conversation sort of serves as like a pebble in the shoe. It kind of, it sticks in the back of their mind and it, it causes a little discomfort. And maybe a couple of days later, a few weeks later, they'll come back to say the comment thread in which you were discussing it, or their, you know, the email thread that you were talking with them through and they'll, they'll pick it back up. They'll say, you know, I, I really, you know, have been thinking about what we, what we discussed with this first cause, you know, and the more I think about it, the more I, I realize, yeah, there must have been a first cause of all this stuff that it didn't just, it didn't just randomly happen here without any sort of intelligent cause behind it. Um, and then once you get to that point, you can kind of take them another step further and ask them to reflect on what this cause must be like. What are some other characteristics of this cause? It's a really, really long process from, arguments for the existence of God to getting somebody to believe in the God of Christianity and then even further to get them to believe Jesus is God and then even further to get them to believe that Jesus established the Catholic Church. That's a long, long path. And I don't want to mislead people into thinking, hey, if you if you just roll out, you know, this one or two arguments within a couple seconds, they'll get there. Um, it usually takes people a lot of wrestling, a lot of reflection, a lot of contemplation and a lot of work. Don't you think that you know the the problem of modernity is the wake of you know the death of metaphysics and the death of you know philosophy in the public square philosophy within the school systems and the educational systems where we can't even really have these conversations unless there's some type of premise of understanding of terminology and whatnot and it's like we're so rooted in our concept of progress being associated with technological advancement and science and 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 mathematics um, yeah. How, how, how do you even begin to have these dialogues with people, Brandon? Because, you know, it's very evident that you, you are so passionate and you're so gifted intellectually and you communicate so clearly, uh, you know, I, I, that's gotta be a challenge for you. Yeah, it could be a challenge. You know, I think the collapse of philosophy is, is one of the most devastating trends of our culture over the last couple hundred years, because when you lose philosophy, you lose the ability to critically and clearly think. And when you lose the ability to think, disastrous consequences inevitably follow. Um, the modern project, the Enlightenment project, did place a high value on reason and philosophy, but it's it's postmodernism, this period that's followed modernity, that has tended to relativize most concepts of morality and religion. And it precludes, you know, just a rational philosophical discussion about these important matters. But I, I think most of the people I talk with, the, the prejudice they have is that only things that can be settled by science are things that we can know with confidence or maybe even certainty that everything else is sort of just up for grabs. Um, so they know, for example, that like science has produced remarkable results in the realms of biology, chemistry, physics, technology, astrophysics, you know, all that stuff. And because of its tremendous results, they think it's the only reliable way to come to know things. And so when you roll out, say, these proofs for God, which are not scientific proofs, we can't prove that God exists scientifically because science is only concerned with the natural world, with things you can see or hear, or taste, touch, or smell. And God's immaterial. He's not part of the natural world. So it's the wrong tool to even explore the question. I think you have to first get people over that initial prejudice and once they realize science isn't the right tool to explore this question, then you can help guide them and say, well, well, then what sort of tool is the right tool? You know, what sort of, what sort of um, exploration should we pursue? And that's when you can introduce if they're unfamiliar with it. Well, you know, for hundreds of years, people have been relying on philosophy to answer these more transcendent questions that are outside the purview of science. Um, I found many people find that interesting and, and novel because again, most, most high schoolers today, most college kids today never took a single philosophy class. Philosophy is nowhere on their radar. So you kind of delicately put it on there as, you know, a way to explore questions that science is ill-equipped to answer. Yeah. Even like philosophy courses today, even though they're labeled philosophy seem more like they're a philosophy of some sort of agenda to get you to come to some sort of understanding of something, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to, yeah. as opposed to an exercise of the mind through 
discussing things and coming to truth through conversations and to have and to have the skill set to be able to dissect right you know sociology or any other types of uh things that are being presented to me or marketed like i can now dissect this stuff and critically think right. as it's associated to anything yeah, that I would a, look at. a liberal college my wife went to, Thomas Aquinas in California, and mm-hmm. you know, we're very close to a lot of the families there. They have a very long classical tradition, and for those that don't know, classical mm-hmm. tradition is really following these great minds. And, yeah, and classical liberal, liberal arts. Yeah. Right, so like instead of going <clears throat> to school and learning English and math and this and that, uh, and, and then taking sort of a philosophy elective, or if you're majoring in it, taking different philosophy, they they basically walk you through the 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 anthropology of of philosophical thought, and it's kind of bizarre when you think about it as like a person thinking about college because you're like, well, what am I learning, right? Like, what are the tools that you're giving what me? What do it's I so, get out of this? Right. It's so ut- utilitarian. But the the beautiful thing that I discovered uh, over the course of our marriage and and learning more about the people that are there and and the graduates is that these people are more, they're better equipped Mm -hmm. to go into medical school. Mm -hmm. They're better equipped to go become attorneys and enter into law school. I mean, like there are, are very prestigious business schools that receive some of these people and say, I have never met somebody so well prepared and they don't have this background mm-hmm. that these other kids get A's mm-hmm. and B's and A's and, you know, and, and I think that speaks a lot of volume for the, the resurgence of philosophy. If, if it were to occur even a, a greater standard. You know? Yeah. I think you guys both mentioned that, you know, you mentioned the pursuit of truth and you mentioned science and it really gets to, I think, <clears throat> There's a lack of understanding of what truth is today. I mean, we really are, as a modern society, wrestling with that quid est veritas. Quid est veritas. Right? Yeah. What is truth? Is it is it only true if I could put it on a scale and measure it? I can see it, feel it, and examine it. There's truths that go beyond the physical sciences um, that have been completely abandoned or completely dismissed out of hand because they are not a measurable physical science. And this whole idea of materialism not in the sense of mercantile materialism, but it is actually a physical materialism is so ingrained in people that nothing else really satisfies. So you say, well, where's God? I can't measure him. You know, there's this famous story of the the Russian astronaut getting in outer space and like, I don't see God up here. Well, of course not. Because again, like Brandon said, even the physical senses necessarily can be the wrong tool to perceive God unless you're seeing or experiencing God in his incarnate form during his ministry. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. And, you know, as a parent, as a father of seven, thinking about, you know, what high school and college are going to look like for my kids, I reflected today, if I could get them to excel in one subject among all the academic disciplines, it'd be philosophy. Like, I'd rather have a student or a child who knows how to think and argue and reason well, because then they're set up for all the other ones, whether they excel in math or physics or English or history. Philosophy to me is, is the most foundational discipline. It's, it's so true. And I've been so blessed to be a part of a publicly funded initiative of education here in the Jacksonville area. The Cornerstone Classical Academy is a publicly funded school and they are returning to the classics on a primary level, you know, and, and they're introducing cons- philosophical concepts to little children. And that's that's the way to do it. And when it comes down to sharing the truth, you know, like quid est veritas, what is truth? Well, you will know a tree by its fruit. And I love that whole the the phrase veritati splendor, you know, from that encyclical, mm-hmm. like the splendor of truth. There's a there's an aspect of of splendor. There's an aspect of like this effect of truth on my mind, my heart, mm, my body, right. like my whole being yeah. existentially is being yeah. affected by truth and and I I am sensing a greater connection with existence itself. So they I think that's a beautiful beautiful uh consideration and I completely agree Brandon. My goodness, I we need to we need to make that a primary objective when it comes to raising our kids and families. Now, do you know what else is a great school? 
I would be so happy. I think you know what I'm going to say. I, I know exactly. Why don't you read my mind and tell me what another great school mm, is? <laughs> is that Ape a Maria power? University. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> our, our sponsor and my alma mater, Ave Maria University, in the same manner that, that uh, Ryan Delacrosse was just saying and what we're sharing here, what Brandon was just sharing, is a school that is based on a classical liberal arts education. And it is core curriculum and a requirement of every graduate to have a core amount of philosophy classes and theology classes, which, you know, there are a number of schools in the Catholic tradition that don't require that, um, that are out there. And they're obviously secular schools that do not require philosophy. But when it comes to Ave Maria University, we want our graduates to be able to critically think and be well equipped, as Ryan Delacrosse was just saying, to encounter the trials and tribulations of the world. And I love Ave Maria University. And if you look into Ave Maria today, you will love it too. If you know any kids out there, or anybody that's pursuing education, please encourage them to check out Ave Maria today. And talk about excellence. Exodus 90 is truly an excellent program. Another one of our sponsors. They have a 90-day program based in the traditions of cultivating fraternity and masculinity, imaged after the person of Jesus Christ, you know, the new Adam. And with cold showers and devotions and limiting your exposure to the world and sports and movies and television and the busyness of life, slow everything down, get back to the simple way of life, and really cultivate masculine virtue and grow in fraternity. It's an excellent program. They're one of our best sponsors. I yeah, just so really appreciate the relationship. Guys did it last year. Yeah, and mm -hmm. they're really tracking quite a few more. So they're that their um, their big Lent Exodus starts on January fourth, and it will end in conjunction with Easter, so that you can have maybe a little bit more of an intense Lent this year that will really prepare you, yeah. uh, break some of the habits that you have that have been tying you to this world and dulling your senses, right? Uh, what are you going to choose, pornography and food and your cell phone or Jesus Christ, right? It's really not a competition, but so many people are so engulfed by sure. the appetitive nature of their being that they forget about the the uh, the metaphysical nature of themselves as well. So Exodus 9 is a great system to help you re-identify with uh, some of the more core things and some of the more important things of your existence. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Brandon, for being patient while we mentioned our sponsors who allow for great guests like you to be able to come on uh, with all this cool equipment that we're able to pay for. That's right. So, Brandon, what are some of the other... Now, I know we talked about Coam, right? But there's a lot of the other ones. Now, I don't expect you to be able to or have the time to run down them all and uh, make elaborate defenses or argumentations of all of them. But what are some of the other ones that maybe someone who's interested could look into for arguments for the proof of God? Well, as I said, there's at least 20, if not 30 or 40, depending on which list you, uh, I, you check out. So there's a whole lot more, but some of the more popular ones, um, you got the argument from a first cause. So we kind of hinted at that a little earlier. That one goes back to uh, Aristotle you have uh, the argument from the intelligibility of the world. Um, so again, we kind of hinted at that, that this world is intelligible. So it's marked by order and reasonability, you know, disciplines like science and math can map the world. Like for, for some strange reason, mathematics seems to consistently work, you know, year after year, century after century. Why is that? We kind of take it for granted, but, you know, philosophers have been wondering, why is it that the world is marked by this intelligibility? It certainly doesn't have to be. So why is it? Um, there's the argument from morality. And this is another one of my favorites. This is one that I also teach in this free video course that I'm running right now at Claritas U. We actually only cover three arguments, the Kalam argument, the contingency argument, and then this moral argument. And the moral argument basically runs like this. If God doesn't exist, there would be no objective facts, moral facts in the world. So these would include things like objective uh, values, like this or that particular action is objectively wrong or objectively good but also moral duties. It's like you, people should act in particular ways and not act in particular ways. So if God doesn't exist, there are no objective moral facts in the world. However, there are objective moral facts in the world. 
therefore God exists. Um, and again, you'd have to do a little work unpacking those premises and those conclusions, but most people intuit some form of this argument. You know, they realize that, for example, it's objectively wrong to torture innocent children for fun. Even if somebody has a personal opinion that that's okay, you know, maybe some psychopath thinks it's fine to torture babies for fun because it brings him pleasure. We don't just say that that psychopath has a different opinion than us. We don't say that, well, he's got his moral view, I've got my moral view. No, we say he's objectively wrong. He's just wrong about that. That's why we call them a social uh, psychopath because their moral faculties are deficient, they're broken, they're not working. Um, but if that's the case, if there are moral actions that are objectively wrong, if it's against some moral law to do those things, then it implies there's some objective standard or morality by which we measure these things against. If there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver is the pithy way to put it. Um, so again, a lot more needs to be said about that, but I find that one often hits home with a lot of people. You know, they, they wonder why is it that there are these objective moral rules in the world and where do they come from? Um, and then kind of on the, on the less philosophical side, you have things like the argument from beauty. Why are there so many beautiful things in the world? Why does beauty touch it, touch us the way it does? When we see, you know, Ryan was talking about the mountains in Colorado. When you hear, you know, Mozart or some beautiful symphony, when you gaze on a, you know, extraordinary piece of art, when you walk into a breathtaking cathedral, why are our souls affected that way? And mm -hmm. not just at the material level, like not what are the chemical reactions going on in our body, but why are we so drawn to beauty? And why does beauty leave us unsatisfied. Even when we see the most beautiful cathedral, you walk into, you know, Chartres or Saint-Chapelle, you revel in the beauty, but you realize there's something even more. I want more of this. There's a, the beauty, individual acts of beauty serve as signposts to beauty itself. Mm. You know, why, why are our souls drawn to some source of beauty beyond the world we experience? So the argument from beauty takes that form and then finally, there's the argument from religious experience. And I, I, some people kind of discount this a lot of times because it's a more of a subjective form, but there's been a lot of people that have come to believe in God simply because they had a profound experience of God. You know, some famous examples would be uh, Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project in America, one of the preeminent scientists of our day. He had an experience, I think it was out in nature. He was in front of a waterfall of, or something and it was just such a, an extraordinary moment of, of beauty and transcendence that something he says just turned in his soul and he realized there's a God. It was as simple as that. Um, I think of people like the French poet, Paul Claudel, who walked into Notre Dame Cathedral and he was looking at a statue of Our Lady and behind him they were uh, there was this uh, polyphony chant going on and all of these forces sort of came together for a moment for him that was like Francis Collins where something changed and he began weeping. And he went, he said, I was an atheist when I walked in and I was a believer when I walked out, something transformed him. Now the problem with those experiences are they're not translatable to other people because they're not objective. They're not going to convince other people to believe in God, but they are good reasons to believe in God for you. That if you've experienced God in a profound way, then that's good warrant for you to believe in God. So this is just a sampling, again, maybe 20, 30, 40 other arguments for God. So Christians should not be afraid that, you know, we don't have anything to say to atheists. Mm -hmm. We don't have any answers. We have an abundance of reasons and evidence and arguments for believing in God. I love that your presentation has circled around the transcendentals, as you, as you just mentioned, you know, truth, beauty, and goodness. And that was certainly one of the moments in philosophy class when I was first exposed to that. It just made so much sense that the human person is drawn toward truth, toward, drawn toward beauty and goodness. And the arguments that you've presented today are very, very helpful in respect to when you look back historically and you can kind of conceive, you know, like the, the passing of time and development and uh, and, you know, like just kind of things emerging and growing in nature currently, you can kind of pilot that back historically and say, okay, we've come from a certain place and we're going somewhere. So the first mover unmoved or the cause or the column argument, that's helpful to look back and develop a concept of God. And then how present is that to like experience of 
moral law, natural law, an appeal to beauty or experiential goodness. That type of that type of exposure gives you a sense of presently in this present time. This is the argument I'm going to appeal to you so that you can come to a belief in God. <clears throat> is there anything that you've come across that is more eschatological in argumentation? Mm-hmm. Um, a very dear friend of mine, classmate at Abi Maria. Jeremiah, Jeremy Valerie, uh, I mean, I remember this still when we were in undergrad. He was just so fascinated with with eschatology. He's worked, I believe, on his PhD and his doctorate, and he wrote a, a dissertation, "The Salvation of the Cosmos: Benedict the Sixteenth's Eschatology and Its Re- Relevance for the Current uh, Ecological Crisis." Um, so. You know, I'm remembering conversations I had with him years ago about that. But I'm curious to find out, Brendan, is there an argument for, you know, God from eschatology? Could you tell us what eschatology is, the <laughs> listeners too as well? <laughs> the listeners want to know. <laughs> yeah, es- eschatology just refers to the end times or, you know, from a Christian perspective, gotcha. the second coming of Christ, our, our eternal destiny, questions dealing with where we're going. Um, yeah, there's a whole uh, family, again, of arguments that uh, that uh, rely on what we were made for. You know, I think the most famous one here is C.S. Lewis's famous argument from desire. So, uh, again, there's various forms of this throughout history, uh, down through the centuries, but uh, C.S. Lewis really refined it and I think presented the most persuasive version. But he effectively says, if we were made for something that can't be satisfied by anything in this world, the most likely scenario is that the thing we are made for is not of this world. And he points to the fact that there's almost a universal consensus through history that people desire and hunger for something like God, something like the transcendent. This seems to be an innate natural desire. You know, it's not something that's put into us by environment. It's not something that um, that we're conditioned to want. It's something more akin to hunger or thirst or our desire for sexuality. It's just something that's part of what it means to be human, that we desire transcendence. But again, Lewis says like our desire for hunger points to the fact that food exists. It, it would be inexplicable if there was nothing to satisfy that desire. Every other innate natural desire has something that fulfills it. Why wouldn't this desire for transcendence? And I think this ties into the eschatology because it points to what we right. what we yearn for at the end of time. You know, we hunger to be united with the source of truth and goodness and beauty. We hunger for eternal justice. You know, when we see bad things around us every day that frankly won't be resolved in our time. You know, justice won't be achieved we have this desire that eventually the bad guys will get what they deserve and the good guys will get what they deserve. But if it can't be satisfied in this world, that longing can only be satisfied by God at the end of time. Um, So again, lots of other versions of that type of argument, but I do think it's a, it's a strong one to reflect on that. Why is it that we were created with these innate desires? Every other innate desire we have can be fulfilled why not this one? Beautiful. Outstanding. You Amazing. like that answer? I, I'm like so <laughs> jazzed by that answer because that's the, that's the thing that I, I turn to all the time about why I believe. Your homily was that today. My homily was about yeah. that today. And it's so true, isn't it? I mean, yeah. and, and we can't sit there and begin to contextualize what heaven's going to be like, this mystery, but, but fulfillment. Of yeah. the ache, fulfillment of the longing. Well, even mm-hmm. even the idea of contentment, mm-hmm. right? Like the idea, like the the fact that we can be content mm-hmm. in something, you know, meets that in in a very beautiful, perfect way. So you can even you have this desire, you have this yearning, and then you can even bring it down into like somebody having a content contentment. And you were bringing that up today. It's like if you know, how much money do you need to be happy? Right. I mean, where, you know, if, if you're focused and you're pointed towards money as a source for your happiness, then you should have a level in your brain where you are content. Mm-hmm. And that, that typically never happens. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not like, okay, well, 
you know, all everybody wins the lottery. Ninety five percent of them are like, you know, just living horrible lives. Right. So that shows you that that level of wealth doesn't bring contentment. And, you know, that's just one excerpt mm-hmm. of, of, of that. But yeah, you wonder, you wonder why, mm-hmm. you know? What I like about Lewis's presentation of this argument from desire is he says this argument is most effective at the times of life when we do achieve those things that we think we really desire. So for example, when you win the lottery and you win, you know, $50 million and now you're rich, richer beyond your wildest mm-hmm. dreams, but then you still realize that this longing, this ache for, you know, satis- satisfactory truth and goodness and beauty isn't met. You know, whenever you do go see the most beautiful thing the wor- this world can offer and you're still dissatisfied, when you experience the most, you know, sexual pleasure or powers or honors and they're still unsatisfying, that's when this argument has the most force because it affirms that nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy the desires of your heart. And as Lewis says, that's a sign that maybe we were not made only for this world. I'm sitting here here thinking of this guy. I was walking downtown Disney, right? Brandon, this, I mean, you just, when you were were speaking, it was just like right in my brain, right in your backyard. So this guy brought his family from the UK and they're walking around Disney and he flips out. I know where this is going. And he says, don't you realize I've paid tens of thousands of dollars to make you happy? <laughs> and you're miserable and we're having a... You know, yeah, it's just it's like, not funny, but, you know, it's like... It's, it is it, funny. It's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's just... But it, it's, to, it's to Brandon's point and C.S. Lewis's point. You know, our hearts are restless. It's Augustine. Yeah. Our hearts are restless yeah. until they rest in, in God. And that's not going to be realized Ooh. until the beatific vision. And Aquinas goes into what you're saying perfectly, Delacross, too. It's just, you know, like our pursuits for power or money or all these. They're other- insatiable. They're just insatiable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a God-sized hole inside of us. You know, we've said that before. And it's God-sized, which means it's infinite. And no matter and, how much stuff you throw into it, you can never fill that hole up. And think about the long tail of distraction mm-hmm. that we put, right? Oh, because yeah. now you're like, you're like in high school, you want to be a lawyer. My my older brother's a perfect example. The brightest guy. So smart. Perfect score, SAT, graduated Georgia Tech, top of his class, two years, MBA, CEO, and, you know, just couldn't find happiness and now he now he's he's working and he's wrapping vehicles he owns a small company that wraps vehicles i have never seen this guy more happier in my life but the long tail of of some of this is such a massive distraction in our lives from god Mm -hmm. proverbs proverbs when so this is uh chapter 21 when the arrogant man is punished the simple are the wiser when the wise man is instructed he gains knowledge you know, the simple life. And th- and that's what I was sharing this morning, too, is, you know, for diocesan priests, we we take a, a promise. We take a solemn promise before God of simplicity. And, you know, there has to be a sense of simplicity on this side of, of heaven if, if we're going to navigate the path. And one thing I, I want to share, too, is in relationship to the beatific vision, a big shout out to Dr. Reardon, who taught uh, dogma and doctrine and a phenomenal theologian, wonderful man, it just really integrated the teachings of the church in his personal life. But he said, when we get to heaven, we're going to be in this beatific vision existentially, and we're going to be before God encountering him in this constant state of, <sighs> right? And just like that complete consuming communal intimacy of ecstasy of profound fulfillment in in this communion of of persons that you know like how can you how can you paint that on a canvas right <laughs> you know how can you say this that? is heaven how can you measure that how can you, you measure that how can you how can you scientifically <laughs> you know get every little detail before this mystery we behold before this mystery we wonder and awe before yep. this mystery we are influenced in knowledge understanding and counsel and and wisdom and all of these intellectual gifts of the holy spirit you know that's like that that all consuming experience you know yeah 
Yeah, Brandon, I think what you've done here is well, you've shown some of the really great individual arguments and but I think you have shown that it really is. There's no one proof. There's no measurable. There's no benchmark. There's no yeah. test. It really is a suite of tools. It's a suite of understanding that builds up yeah. into almost a symphony, individual notes that turn yeah. into a symphony of that proof mm. of that knowing of God. Um, and that, the arc that you provided yeah. for us, too, from like the beginning yeah. to the now to eschatology, the end times, you've really presented a very succinct, beautiful argument and arguments that all of us could use yeah. at any time. Now, that's that's the biblical motif, is that the heavens proclaim the glory amen. of God. Everything in the world serves as a signpost to God from the beginning of the cosmos to our desires, to our experiences, to our longing for our eternal destiny. They're all converging roads pointing to God. Amen. Awesome. So, Brandon, how can people get some maybe more information from you, some more resources from you? I know you have a great tool. Uh, why don't you tell them where they can find that? Sure. Um, the main place where I share a lot of my videos and courses is Claritas U. So Claritas is the Latin word for clarity. And in Claritas U, I create a series of video courses on hot button topics that make Catholics nervous. So these would include things like atheism, what we've been talking about here, transgenderism, same-sex marriage, abortion, contraception, any prickly topic that the average Catholic gets tongue-tied or nervous or anxious about discussing. I created Claritas U to have a series of short video courses on each of these topics to get you up to speed, to get you clear and confident. Uh, but right now, I actually have a, a free short video course on answering atheism, which walks through a little in a little bit more depth some of the things we've been talking about here. You can find that at atheism.claritasu.com. Uh, that's the website where you can uh, log in and get access to the videos. So atheism.claritasu.com. Yeah, and I'll make sure that I put a link to that below. It'll be on our episode page on our website, and it'll be in the show notes here um, on whatever post you're listening to this on. And I have to say, if if our viewers or our listeners out there feel anything like I'm feeling or like we're feeling, Brandon, we want you back on the show for another show. This was a such an engaging conversation. It was a pleasure to finally, you know, interact with you. And you know, if you if you're feeling the way that we're feeling, make sure you check out Claritas U right now. Definitely find out what Brandon's uh, Brandon's providing to the world in his ministry. We are so grateful for your ministry. May God continue. Continue to prosper you, my brother. And we really, really appreciate you journeying with us here at the Catholic Talk Show and being a part of the family. And to everybody out there, including our patrons, God bless you, and we'll see you next week.